to this episode of Bioethics for the People, an informal look at hot topics, controversies, and scholarship dealing with bioethics, medicine, technology, and anything else we're interested in. We're your hosts, Devin Stahl from Waco, Texas. And I'm Tyler Gibb from Kalamazoo, Michigan. So Tyler, we are finally distributing the vaccine. How is it going? Well, I think that we could uh, safely say it could be going better. You know, I was pretty excited when it came out. And I mean, I think a lot of people, there's a lot of optimism about it. But the distribution and the administration of it has been pretty rocky. Yeah, we were supposed to, or the goal was to have 20 million people vaccinated before the end of 2020. We're now officially in 2021. And it's only like 3 million people have been given the first dose. A little short of the 20 million. Right. And it's what's been interesting to watch from you know from our perspective is the different ways in which this is failing. And so I think that, that there are distribution issues, and we'll talk about those in a minute, and there's also acceptance issues, but it's almost like this, you know, a, a Swiss cheese effect of all of, everything that can go wrong is going wrong in a lot of places. Swiss cheese being the worst of the cheeses. So anything that could go wrong <laughs> has right. gone wrong. I like that. Yeah. Yes. Well, so let's talk about it. 20 million, I think we thought this would be the easy part. We know who, more or less who a healthcare worker is. You can get the vaccine, where the vaccine's being distributed in your healthcare facility. And then these long-term care facility residents, you know, they're a population that should be easy to reach. So why has it been so hard to vaccinate healthcare workers and people in long-term care facilities? One of the first issues is what we talked about on an earlier episode is exactly who is a healthcare worker. And even if we have this pool of healthcare workers who we've kind of identified, you know, are essential or, or should be one of the first groups of people to be identified, logistically it's been really complicated to try to figure out, you know, who do we send? Do we start alphabetically? Do we pull them out of a hat? Is it random? Is it based upon some sort of other factors like, you know, personal health issues that make people more susceptible or you know, so there's just a ton of different complicating issues even if within that the, those subgroups of healthcare workers and so i think that the distribution or from from the factory to the states at least and probably from the states to the institutions i think the distribution is actually going pretty well i think that a lot of the places have the vaccine that they are supposed to get and i think maybe a lot of that is the military was involved heavily in the logistical planning, which is something that I don't think there's a better group in the world to handle mass distribution of resources. So I think that that's, that's gone pretty well. But then the, I think the bottleneck right now is we have the vaccine, whose arm do we stick the needle into? Right. Some states have only vaccinated like 15% uh, or have used 15% of the vaccines that they have. So it's not a question of getting the vaccine you know, states have gotten the vaccine and hospitals even have gotten the vaccine. It's really, yeah, just like you're saying, this bottleneck of, okay, now how do we distribute it? I mean, apparently it's a logistical nightmare, right? So the, the federal government actually left it up to states to figure out how to distribute and direct the doses. How do you schedule it? How do you staff people to administer it? Um, this is all fallen on state public health departments that are saying, you know, they are already totally overwhelmed by COVID. And so this is one more logistical thing that they had to figure out 
and it's way more complicated. Uh, and they could have used perhaps some more direction from the federal government on how to how to roll that out. And we'll remember that that stimulus package that was just passed in December sort of was delayed. So even getting money to states to figure this out was delayed, which has meant that the variability among states, you know, some are using about 40% of the vaccines they've received, some are only, you know, like at 15%. So it doesn't seem to be going well because of just how complicated the logistics have been. Yeah, there's this uh, there's this old saying that I've heard about, if you want something done, give it to a busy person, <laughs> right? So people who, I, I but I think that that model or that approach in giving the distribution of vaccines to over, I mean, absolutely overworked, overstressed, over, you know, stretched healthcare institutions and county health departments is almost cruel. I mean, these poor individuals have been at the very, very front line of this in in all of the worst ways and most, you know, difficult trying ways for months since March. And we are asking them again to step up even more and to do something that is not only going to you know, that, that is going to bring the country back. And so it's it's really hard to watch this distribution process kind of tax an already taxed system. Yeah, and I've heard from some of my friends at hospitals, and you can tell me if this is true at your hospital too, Tyler, that, you know, they'll get like a day's notice that they're getting a, a shipment. So sometimes they've been promised shipments that never come in. And then sometimes it's like, oh, you're getting, you know, 600 doses tomorrow, you need to figure out how to store it and then line up people. You know, so people will get an email that is like, okay, do you want to get it tomorrow? And then they have to schedule all that. That's pretty complicated to do when you're not getting a ton of notice. Yeah, logistically, uh, for the institution, it's really, really difficult to, to administer. Not only just who to identify, but the technology of it all. Like there have been uh, institutions that have tried to create their own scheduling system. I've, I've read about some that are using like sign up genius and survey monkey oh, <laughs> just to RSVP for these slots. Sometimes it goes through your kind of your online chart medical record that you can access and it prompts you to do this. But uh, I've heard from other individuals working in this area that one of the primary bottlenecks or issues that has to be worked through is the just purely the logistics of scheduling an appointment and identifying people to come in and, and sign up for those. I mean, people are not getting emails, their emails are getting filtered to spam, you know, spam or junk mail folders, and they never have um, the opportunity even. And and what's been interesting to, to listen to or to read about in the media is also uh, the number of reports about healthcare workers declining the vaccines that they're offered. And so do you have any thoughts about that? So many thoughts about that. So we knew there were all these surveys of the general population done last year that were asking, you know, would you take it? And the numbers were very upsetting, you know, much higher of vaccine refusal than we would normally see. So there's always been people who are refusing vaccines, but it was something like half of Americans were skeptical about the vaccine. So there was always this worry, but you'd think, you know, healthcare workers would be a population that is perhaps less worried or more willing because they believe in the science, because they're working on the front lines, because they're watching people die of COVID. They don't think COVID is a hoax generally. So I thought it would be a little bit higher. It turns out, and this is totally dependent on geography and which healthcare system you work for, but there are tons of hospitals where they're struggling to find 
enough healthcare workers to even take the vaccine. So I know I talked to a bunch of folks in Texas who were saying somewhere between 40 and 60% of hospital staff said they'd be the first to take the vaccine. And that just didn't seem as high as I think many of us had hoped. You know, obviously it's not in every institution, but, but there are some institutions where they were unprepared for the level of resistance to taking the vaccine from their from their workers, from their, their staff and employees. You know, and, and then we start talking or start hearing people talking about, well, if it's this important and it's gonna bring the country's economy back and everyone can get back to normal, then why don't we just make everybody do it? Have you heard that? Oh yes. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, and I often hear it from physicians and I, and I sort of get it. They're, they're so frustrated and they're so overwhelmed by what's going on. They're just sort of like, you know, you should be forced to take this vaccine. It should be, or at least, you know, mandatory in order to work. So both amongst healthcare workers themselves, and then they're thinking about the general population as well. And I think they say that out of frustration, I think there would be some issues of forcing. But I know this is an area that you have worked on, a vaccine refusal amongst healthcare providers. So what's the issue? Can we force them? Well, it, it, it depends. I mean, that's the classic answer, right? It depends. <laughs> but so we talked in one of our, our other episodes of, with uh, Mark Naven, who is a specialist in, in vaccine hesitancy and refusal and, and has done some really interesting work. Um, so go back and listen to that episode if you haven't yet. But what Mark talks about and, and what, what we've done in our, our research is looking at kind of the spectrum of ways we get people to follow recommended behaviors, right? And so we, we've, we talk about how, to, you know, do we incentivize people to do it or do we punish them if they don't do it? And how do we most effectively using kind of, you know, you know cognitive psychology, behavior psychology, like how do we encourage people to actually do these things that we want them to do? And it's not just vaccines. We look at um, you know, voting behavior, for example, or other types of inoculations or, pre- or preventative care medicine. So yeah, I've heard it and you, you're down in Texas, so maybe you've got better information, but that there is a hospital down in Houston that is actually incentivizing their employees to get vaccinated by cash. Is that right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. So there was this report about Houston Methodist paying its healthcare workers $500 to take the vaccine. Wow. It was a little more complicated. They were giving bonuses, and they had given some bonuses previously of $500, um, just as sort of hazard pay, like thanks for all the hard work that you're doing. And then there was another round of $500 bonuses, and they linked them to taking the vaccine. So if you wanted to get your second bonus, you had to take the vaccine. And I think, yeah, the thinking was, you know, we don't want to punish people for not doing it, but we do want to incentivize people Five hundred dollars isn't, you know, so much money, but it's not nothing. I'd like five hundred dollars. That's like a stimulus check almost. Yeah. You know, what do you think about? I mean, before we get into the forcible, you know, handling of this, how about we just incentivize and then we could, you know, obviate all that, you know, mandatory stuff. Yeah, I mean, so cash incentivizes people like like little else does, right? And so I think that that's a a really good way to incentivize people to do behavior they might not otherwise do. The problem with cash incentives sometimes, and and we don't see this as much in other types of incentivizations, like if you're doing like a, a, even like a gift card has a different power than just giving somebody cash. And so the concern that gets raised in, in these cash inducements, especially if it's you know a couple of hundred dollars, which is like you said, it's not nothing. It would be very helpful for a lot of families and you know people struggling right now is, is that 
the psychology is almost that if you're willing to pay me something in cash, it must be pretty risky for me to do. Right? It might be something I wouldn't otherwise do. And then we start thinking about, okay, maybe it's not just an inducement. Maybe it's actually coercive or um, you know, it, it may have gone beyond just inducing behavior and now is um, manipulative in some way. Right. So, so I couldn't find any studies that were directly about healthcare workers and vaccines. Um, doesn't seem like there's been a ton of evidence there. But there are other studies that do show that when you start offering cash to do something, people actually step back and say, oh, well, I didn't think this was all that risky, but now that you're giving me money to do it, it actually must be risky. And so it makes things seem riskier when you start paying for them. There's also some studies that show like $500 isn't quite enough for it actually to be a good incentive. And you know, it, that might be different for different people. If you're a ER physician making half a million dollars a year, 500 bucks, not such a big deal. But you know, if you're on one of those lower paid jobs as a healthcare worker, $500 might be a huge difference in your life. But then do we want people who are being paid the least to be the most incentivized? I mean, that it gets a little tricky there. Yeah, absolutely. That's the incentivization issue, right, in a nutshell. But if we want to take a stronger stance and really try to, to pressure people to do something we believe is is necessary for you know the greater good, then we will look at requiring something, right? Or maybe one step before actually mandating it and enforcing it with civil or criminal penalties, it would be an opt-out system where, where we're just going to assume that this is the case. If you object to it, if you have issues with it, whatever, then it's the onus is on you to take your name out of the pool. And so we, we see this sometimes in, in a couple of countries actually have organ donation as an opt-out system. And so in this country, it's an incentivization and op, an opt-in system where you have to affirmatively say that you want to donate your organs after death. But in some countries, it's the opposite, where in order to not donate, we're just going to presume everybody is going to, and the requirement would be on you to take your name out of that. And so you know th that's something that we can look at for vaccinations, but those types of uh, opt-out systems or um, a requirement that has an exception to it, uh, such as like a, you know a medical exception to a vaccination, for example, a flu vaccine. Th those are probably more common. But I think there's a big difference between the flu vaccine being required for employment with a couple of exceptions and the COVID vaccine. And the primary difference is that this is only approved under an emergency use authorization. Right. Yeah. So before we get there, we'll just say, I mean, there you can force your employees to take a vaccine for the flu um, as a condition of employment. So the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission already allows companies to require employees to be vaccinated for the flu. So that is something we can do. And there's, of course, an opt-out if you, know, you have a medical exemption. So if you qualify under the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can say, you know, this would hurt me in some way, which makes total sense, right? It, some people can't take some vaccines for medical reasons. And then we also allow people to opt out for religious beliefs. You know, this is, of course, always controversial in healthcare, but we do allow people under Title VII of the Civil Rights Act to say, this violates my religious belief, you can't make me do it. And so you get the exemption because you apply for it. So with flu vaccine, we can and often do force people to get it. And you'd think healthcare workers, gosh, these are people who could pass on a flu and potentially kill a vulnerable patient by passing on the flu to them. So it's pretty important that they get it, just like it's pretty important that they, you know, not pass on COVID to a patient, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So, but you're saying that maybe because 
the COVID vaccine is being used under the emergency use authorization and not a full board FDA approval, that changes things. How does that change things? So I think it changes a, a couple of things. One is that in order for a full FDA approval, there has to be more research and there has to be research over a longer period of time. And although I have a complete confidence in the science and the safety and, and the FDA's published literature and all of these studies that support the EUA, it is a truncated process. I mean, it's a shorter process. It's a, it's a pathway during an emergency. And so I, I think in order to force or make a requirement of employment of the vaccination, I think it, for you know, a, a number of different reasons. I think that uh, an EUA is not sufficient enough approval for those types of mandates. Yeah, and that's what I'm hearing from most ethicists I talk to is that, you know, maybe we can and should, but we're not there yet. Uh, so until this is fully approved, it does seem unethical to force employees of hospitals to take the vaccine especially when you look back at the history of the ways we've covertly given not only vaccines, but other sort of experimental things to people before they were fully approved without their knowledge, that we just have a terrible history of that in the U.S. And that's not what's going on here. But because of that past, it makes us extra cautious about forcing people to take any sort of medicine or vaccine that isn't fully approved mm -hmm. by the FDA. Yeah. And so I think that if there is a full, and I think eventually there will be a full full FDA approval of the vaccinations, um, I think at that point then there's more support for the idea of mandating the, the vaccines for employees. But I just don't think that we're there yet. And that's what I've advised the hospitals and even our medical school is that I think that's a pretty widespread position you know, for people working in this area. Yep, I agree. So if you disagree, please you know, tweet at Tyler that he is absolutely wrong and he is the reason that COVID continues. Yeah. I think that's fair, right? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I, I need more hate mail in my life. Yeah. Don't we all <laughs> during these times? Yeah. Well, so Tyler, we're almost wrapping up season one. I can't believe it. We have uh, one more interview to get through. We might do a couple more hot take episodes, but then what, are we done? Are we going to do a season two? What do you think? I don't know. I, I think that we should um, put it to a vote between okay. you and I. <laughs> oh, okay. Yeah, yeah. Um, so all in favor of a second season, say aye. 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 Okay. <laughs> okay. Oh, good. We did not discuss that ahead of time, yeah. so I'm glad that we both agree. Yeah, that would have been awkward. Okay, so <laughs> second season is on. I think that we should ask our uh, our listeners for ideas about topics that they'd find interesting questions, maybe even some some cases. If people, you know, obviously we want to be respectful for, for privacy issues, but if there's something that you've seen as a healthcare provider that has troubled you or yet always had this question in the back of your minds, you can tweet at us. You can, on our website, there are contact information for email addresses. So we'd love to hear what you guys are thinking. Yeah. And if you just hear something in the news or you watched a good movie that had a lot of healthcare in it that you're either confused about or that you want to talk about, please. Uh, we've already gotten some of those emails. We thank you so much for your ideas. Uh, we'd also love to do a write-in episode to cap off the season. So if there are lingering questions you have, if you want to disagree with us on something that we've said in the first season, please uh, email us or uh, message us on one of the social media platforms that we, unlike some other people, still have access to. We have not been permanently banned. Not yet. 
Thank you for listening to this episode of Bioethics for the People. Special thanks to Chris Wright for writing and performing our theme music. For show notes, visit bioethicsforthepeople.com and follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram.